and 88.1 KFCF in Fresno. Stay with us for Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone. This is Jennifer Stone. I have an author live here in the studio in the flesh. His name is Barry Spector. And he's written a fascinating book called Madness at the Gates of the City. And I was going to jump right in and ask him if he's met um, Jean Houston, because I saw she was, you know, she's listed here in the book. Where is she? Um, where's Jean Houston, Mary? Uh, well, I can tell you I haven't met her personally. You haven't met her personally? She's the one who did this... this um, blurb here right uh, <laughs> I think she wrote a book called A Mythic Life and I trust her recommendation absolutely I have read about half the book it is one of those tomes you know that much as I like it every time I read something I wanted to turn and say to the author uh, give me an example <laughs> give me, you know, give me an illustration because I'm an old school teacher and I know what sticks in people's heads, you know, are pictures, things that happen. Uh, let me ask you just first off the bat, um, what, what is it? What, what is your background? I mean, how do you come to this, uh, mythopoetic, what would we call it? Your, your approach to things, is it, you think of it as philosophy or, uh, Let's see, Michael Mead has written here, uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal has given you a blurb. Uh, I know what it is. I know what it is. Are you a generalist? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I'm trying to um, bring together insights uh, from Joseph Campbell on one end and James Hillman to uh, Chomsky and Howard Zinn on the other. Uh, in fact, I think, uh, I really think that our contemporary, uh, narrow political and economic or even religious, uh, attempts to understand our current mess are, have got, have not got us very far. I think we need to take, uh, a broader perspective. Uh, and I'll, I'll just call myself a mythologist. Uh, That's best. That, I, I'm a mythomaniac. It's, it's all I know, but the other day somebody was, Looking at something of mine, they laughed and said, "Oh, that post symbolist. What is she?" And I said, "Is that is that a thing to be? You know?" And then we got into a childish schoolgirl argument, and uh, I have to ask you, uh, they couldn't define myth. One of them insisted that a myth was a lie. Well, let's get past that that one. Yeah, that, let's get right past away. that one right away. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I'd like to suggest. Well. Some uh, some academics uh, have taken, uh, I, I will tell you, literally 80 pages to get to a comprehensive definition of myth. Uh -huh. I, I, try to, I try to convey big ideas in plain English, and I try to keep things as simple as I, as I can so we can get uh, past the definitions of things and right into the real issues. I think myths are very simply the stories that we tell ourselves about mm -hmm. ourselves. Mm -hmm. And they, they flow through our consciousness and determine our, our, our attitudes and our values. And generally, we are totally unconscious of them. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're lies, because the, the, the myths of real cultures, uh, indigenous cultures that have living mythologies, are what connect them to uh, the broader universe and to the, the cycles of nature. And uh, some people have said that myths are true because they're not factual. 
Uh, they, they take us to much deeper levels uh, of, mm-hmm. of our own souls. And also, I would say, the soul of the culture. They may be uh, not, what is it, the, the facts may not be right, but they, they are the truth, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's, that's, the way, that's how I look at things. Yeah, yeah. was it Picasso and Gertrude Stein? They always said you must lie and lie and lie until you tell the truth. I mm-hmm. think, I think uh, the, the most people, grown-ups anyway, understand now what we're talking about, uh, that, you know, all we own is our story. My favorite thing to do is to look at people and say, uh, you know, tell me your story. And it takes them a while to catch on to what I'm saying. You know, I just keep saying, what is your mythos? You know, why uh, are you who you are? Yeah. Where does that come yeah. from? So I'll ask you that. <laughs> me personally? Yeah, personally. Why Why this instead of, uh, um, you know, rough, rough water um, well, surfing? I, well, I can tell you for, for 20 years I've been involved in uh, the mythopoetic uh, men's movement and I I've studied Greek myth for uh, that whole time, and um, f- I think fortunately for me at least, uh, I be- it became obvious to me that these are not simply stories that were uh, told uh, 2,500, 3,000 years ago uh, for, for entertainment value alone. I think they clearly, or at least some of them, clearly have uh, a real uh, value for us uh, uh, and, and, and offer ways for us to look at our current predicaments. And specifically, I would say what 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 really grabbed me a, a long time ago was the myth of of uh, the Greek god Dionysus, and that's that's the, that's the specific image uh, that's been uh, moving me and and moved me to write this book. Yeah, when I when I started reading the book, I kept putting Dionysus in one column and Apollo in the other column. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. you know, and basically for me, you know, what you do with Dionysus is a little bit like what I do with the feminine in myth. So poetics, let's say, let's call it the wild mind, the, oh, what do we have, right brain, left brain, uh-huh. there's so many, the language is, is, uh, Oh, it's a bottomless pit lately. Well, I, I've listened to you for years, and I appreciate your broad perspective on these things. You know, I agree. You know. By the way, if you don't mind, uh, I want to just mention the uh, the subtitle of the book, which uh, you missed, and that is The Myth of American Innocence. Uh, this book is not uh, about old stories. It's using old stories to take a look, a good uh, hard look, at, uh, at, at, at who we are now and who we've been um, as Americans for these 400 years uh, that uh, white people and uh, and black people have been on this continent. Yeah, I was going to get to that innocence part of the subtitle because it bothers me. I mean, I haven't been innocent since the atomic bomb and I was only 11. <laughs> no, 12. What was I, 12? My father was... Uh, in the Navy, he said that Nagasaki was the end of innocence because the second bomb was the final corrupt, mean, nasty, rotten, you know, one bomb wasn't enough for them anyway. Well, I think I would let me let me respond to that one. Uh, uh, on 9-11, there were countless uh, pronouncements of the end to innocence. Uh, and uh, after after Pearl Harbor, there were countless uh, similar pronouncements. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think. Uh, Americans have constructed, in a, in a desperate way, almost all these uh, generations, uh, this image of ourselves as innocent. And, and I, let me let me uh, rephrase that: white Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, innocence is um, 
this myth of innocence that I've tried to uh, 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 speak about in the book, uh, it, it constantly cracks, and there were constantly attempts to patch it up. And uh, innocence, almost by by definition, uh, uh, gets broken. Uh, uh, you know, we we suffer into experience, uh, and. Um, when innocence is broken, it always seems like the first time. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, so when you're when when someone spoke of uh, you know of, mm. of the end of innocence uh, with uh, with Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, uh, in a sense, uh, innocence sealed back up mm, afterwards, yeah. and then it was broken. Yeah. It was it was broken in the '60s. Mm-hmm. It was broken with the Kennedy assassination. Speak about, people spoke about again about the end of innocence when Kennedy died. Yeah, we want to wake up and be a virgin again. You know, and what was it, Bush? We kicked the Vietnam. Said that's when getting your manhood back. That's the other side of it. Yes, we kicked the well, Vietnam. Well, I think syndrome. innocence and, and masculinity are, are tied together in, in in our American story. Yeah. It's very, very weird psychology. I remember years ago, uh, Norman Mailer of all people came out and said uh, said that we were obsessed with our virtue. He said the lowest. Khan in the worst prison will look around and find somebody who is less moral than he. He'll find the child abuser or something, you know, so that he can feel morally superior. Somehow or another, this is our, our deepest need to feel, what is that, the Puritan um, state of grace? I, I don't know why we're so self-righteous. Well, it sounds like you've read my book. Uh, oh, well, sure. Yeah, part of it. Sure, uh, most, yeah, no, self-righteous. You're, you're speaking about about the process uh, that I call other, uh, otherizing. Uh, I think uh, the the image of Dionysus. Maybe we don't really have time in, in a short interview uh, to go very far into this, but let me just give you just a few thoughts. Um, he's the mad god, the mad of of wine, the mad of uh, the god of uh, of uh, of ecstasy. He arrives uh, into the culture and into the soul of the individual. Um, in ways that can disrupt uh, completely uh, our, our carefully uh, uh, put together ego and 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 social structures, and I think uh, the image of Dionysus was was created uh, was evolved over at least fifteen hundred years in in the consciousness of, of, of the the ancient so-called ancient Greeks, and for another t- for a further two thousand years it's it's been part of our cultural heritage, and the academics uh, will give you dozens of definitions uh, or explanations of what this god is, and again we don't have time, but uh, for my purposes and the purposes of this book he's the other he is. Uh, the, the, that I think the Greeks evolved uh, an image to describe an archetype, uh, which mm-hmm. is something in the soul, uh, some, the hardwiring of the soul, mm-hmm. and um, which is which refers to who we are at, at the very deepest level, but whom uh, we cannot admit to consciousness, and therefore we project the other upon. Uh, convenient scapegoats mm-hmm. and in, in American history our convenient scapegoats have been what I would call the inner other which is black people mm-hmm. and the outer other which for 250 years or so were the red Indians mm-hmm. and if, if I could just run with this for another second mm-hmm. uh, if we look at the period of approximately 1878 or so um, there was a fairly abrupt switch when newspapers began to uh, to trumpet the uh, the fear of the red communist, and it was a gradual mm-hmm. uh, transition. But uh, within a decade, the fear uh, of the red 
Indian, the outer other in American uh, uh, culture and history, had been pretty much supplanted by the fear of the red communist. Mm -hmm. The red Rosa Luxemburg was my favorite, you know. Uh, uh, It's both feminine and communist. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, woman, of course, is the original other in in Western culture. I was just going to say, otherism, we're the first. That's our original model. Right. Uh, And that's what we share, of course, with with all of the inheritors of the patriarchy. You know, but of course, Dionysus is just the party person in everybody. It isn't man, woman. Uh, Actually, yeah, everybody can... Indeed, Dionysus was the uh, the only Greek uh, male god who was worshipped primarily by women. By women, yeah. American. It's that, that old Adonis bit. You know, the women, they had to celebrate on the roof. But still, you know, uh-huh. it's, uh-huh. what is it? It's, um, it's, we used to think of it as the real you. You know, you let loose your, uh, oh, you can get Freudian and call it the libido or the id, whatever. But uh, Well, Freud certainly referred uh, to the id and uh, thinking of Dionysus. Mm-hmm. But, you know, one of his uh, epithets was Lucios, which comes from a Greek uh, root which gives, which leads us to analysis or catalyst, uh, which is basically something which, which is added to the equation or to, or to the, uh, the, the chemical mix and loosens things up. And um, I think that the reason why I'm, why I'm bringing Dionysus into this uh, um, study of American history is that uh, due to our immensely influential Puritan Heritage, which you've already made some reference to, uh, I think from early on, and uh, we began to, we white Americans began to project uh, this uh, this image of, of of Dionysus, which which was which we thought of as. Uh, those who could not control their impulses. You know, ah. So you're calling him a party animal. From a different perspective, <laughs> uh, he is the essence of group, group e- ecstasy and uh, at the highest religious uh, you know, meaning. Uh, but um, the, the, the whites, the northern whites, the Puritans, uh, mm-hmm. projected uh, uh, this uh, inability to control your impulses and especially your sexuality upon the Native Americans, who, um, oddly enough, were, had a much more normal se- uh, sexual life than the Puritans did. Uh, of course. And in the of South, course. you had the, you had what I call the, the predatory imagination of the the white planters who were not religious. But they, of course, uh, within a few generations, had to deal with a mass population of black people, uh, and whom they also projected uh, these uh, this uh, this inability to control your impulses. That's upon. schizophrenic. Yeah, you get yeah. to Thomas Jefferson. No, I was thinking, uh, what is that? Uh, not not oh shoot, not not. Um, not so much otherism. Uh, take take our president, for example. Who could be more controlled, more elegant, more um, sophisticated? You know, everybody complains that he does not uh, uh, lose his temper and right. behave emotionally. We kind of wish he would, don't we, we? Yeah, everybody wants him to be the Dionysus, you see. And yet, here he is. Um, he has some um, African heritage, not much, but, you know, Kenya, is, uh, his father was definitely... Uh, his father, and uh, at the same time, I watched him the other night at the White House. Um, uh, it was the Latin singers, and then there was another one. Uh, we've had um, we've had Afro-Cuban. Uh, he gets up on stage and he dances, <laughs> you know, dance with his wife, uh, dance with his daughters. He well, obviously yeah. was having fun. Well, the real issue may be not so much who he is, but uh, what we project on him. Exactly, exactly, and um, and. Um, what we're seeing in, in the last election, and, and really for the whole previous two years, has been uh, projection uh, uh, by by the uh, 
by the fundamentalists and the conservatives, uh, uh, all, a whole series of mixed projections, really. And uh, uh, But what we have kind of going on now is the president himself as other. <laughs> and for, for, you know, for, for ever since the beginning, uh-huh. the president himself has, has enacted uh, uh, our, our, our policies, not just our policies, but our, our images of who we are. And he's kind of, uh, uh, some of the presidents have held uh, the projections of royalty. Kennedy certainly did that. Oh, yes. uh, or of the grand old man, uh, you know, the old uh, Senex uh, or a wise old man figure. <laughs> I mean, uh, Eisenhower held that. Yeah, talk about post-symbolist. Oh, <laughs> these people. No, I, I think it is amazing, you know, when you compare him with the one who went before, you know, uh, it's like um, centuries of evolution or something. But at the same time, as you say, nothing seems to matter anymore except what is the new new uh, mantra? Perception is reality. What people see yeah. when they look. Well, that's that's why myths hold us uh, so uh, so strongly. Mm-hmm. It's as if we're in a bubble and all we see is the bubble. People who don't share the mythology are like those uh, standing outside the bubble, uh, looking in, uh, looking in and wondering mm-hmm. why we act the way we do. But we've been conditioned by what is it? Uh, uh, at least twenty generations uh, since uh, uh, the white whites began to uh, conquer the continent, uh, and. Um, I would, I would, I would propose that the basic American story that we've all been uh, uh, living or or consuming uh, has been the st- uh, the story of fear of the other, and um, it's 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 a fascinating thing when you think. Uh, I want to get back to Joseph Campbell for a second. Yeah, uh, he, he, he spoke about the um, uh, uh, you know in, in his great book the. Uh, uh, the hero with a thousand, a thousand faces. faces. He spoke about what he called the monomyth, which is uh, which he um, identified as being universally found in every culture. He didn't speak, of course, about modern culture. But in the monomyth, it's a simple story. Uh, a hero, it's usually a male, although you can think of him as, as the masculine part of ourselves, uh, if you want to. But yeah. basically, in the stories, in the images, it's a male who goes out, hears a call. He, he's, he's in community. He hears a call. That's step one. He goes out into this this realm of magic and mystery and he conquers uh, dragons and he may or may not wed the beautiful princess that's step two and um, then he always returns to community and 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 brings his gifts his experience his boon his his wisdom back to the community now what I think happened in America was something completely different uh, as early as the 1680s and 90s and uh, you, uh, in American literature, you start beginning to you begin to uh, see the emergence of what are called captivity narratives, in which white women who were captive uh, captive among the Indians and lived among them for a while came back and told, escaped and came back and told their stories. And it's fascinating to realize that for the next 50 years, as far as I understand, all but one of America's best-selling books mm-hmm. were captivity narratives. The ultimate erotic fantasy. Oh, oh yeah. Well, that's certainly that part of it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's all mixed. Well, yeah, the, the the fear of the other is just uh, one step away from fascination with fascination with the other, because the other, after all, is ourselves. Oh yes, yes. That's and and nice. I and I think these captivity narr- narratives. Uh, well, I, I uh, for sure they 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 have they remained our most popular literature throughout the 19th and well into the 20th century, all the way up through Star Wars and mm-hmm. and, and almost all of our of our Western movies, especially. 
especially in the 50s, uh, you know, John, most of the John Wayne movies, and all the, all the way up in, in, into um, quasi-real uh, tales such as Jessica Lynch uh, mm-hmm. in the invasion of Iraq. You still have stories of mm-hmm. innocent uh, uh, Americans symbolized by beautiful young women. Death and the Maiden, oh boy. Right. (laughs) Being uh, uh, taken captive or or at at least uh, being threatened by this uh, terrible dark-skinned other. D.W. Griffith. Yeah, of course. uh, uh, Birth of a Nation. Yeah. And so what happened in American myth was um, the only way that the innocent um, community could be saved uh, by from the incursion and threat of this dark other was when this equally mysterious uh, stranger came from outside, came and uh, saved the innocent community, restored innocence to the community, and then, this is important, left. Think Shane, 1954, the very last image uh, in that movie is him literally riding off into the sunset. Always. <laughs> so, uh, so I think what happened was in America, uh, we, we, we evolved uh, a variation of this uh, monomyth uh, in Joseph Campbell's terms, but it was very different. That the hero came from outside, he was, not, he was never a member of the community. Uh, and when he, did his, when he f- completed his work, he left. And in that sense, he's more—he's more like the Christ who came and uh, and did his work for a while and then left. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and by the way, was sacrificed uh, to uh, for his father. Yeah. Uh, uh, and but he but this American hero also shares uh, a lot of the characteristics with Jehovah himself and and his righteous vengeance. <laughs> Whether he's the Lone Ranger or the Demon Lover, you know, yes, he, yes. he's not the kind of guy to hang around and get the work done. No, know. no, and you know, and and. Uh, and it's fascinating to look at this vast uh, stretch of, of characters in the 20th century, um, uh, almost all of whom are single. Uh, the, the basic American hero, whether he's a, it's a Western or, or a science fiction movie, or, or almost any of the heroes that we can think of in, in, our, in our novels and, um, and movies in the 20th century, mm-hmm. are single. Many of them, especially John Wayne, many of his characters are divorced or, uh, or their wives have died. Oh, yes. But Adolf Hitler, you know, uh, <laughs> refused to marry until the last hour because he didn't want women to see that he had a wife. You know. Okay, that's an You're interesting a smart thing. dude, yeah. yes. Yeah. yeah. But but I think uh, I think this is really significant. I mean, the the American hero is disconnected from the feminine. Uh, he may come and uh, 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 he often comes to save the feminine, but he can't stay there. I think he's uh, in general the American hero, and uh, to a great extent, American masculine psychology uh, is desperately afraid of the feminine, and. Um, but according to some writers, the feminine exists uh, in a very uh, one-dimensional manner in, in our stories, simply to give the hero his excuse to exert his righteous vengeance and then leave. I think what is it, most of the writers that I've studied seem to feel that the feminine is almost, almost synonymous with death 
And, uh, of course, everything is synonymous with death. But, you know, the whole notion that um, men wish to leave the earth to get off the ground, you know, not to go back into the... They want to live forever with the sky god and all that stuff. It's this primitive, this ancient psychology, you know, and how they've figured it out. I don't know, all the, the psychiatric spins I read say that, you know, if they... If they are warriors, if they murder other people, if they, you know, cause um, rivers of blood to flow, uh-huh. somehow or another, this this saves them from death. Some weird right. switch right. there. Well, it's a twist on the old uh, um, mythic heroes going back to antiquity that uh, they um, they uh, the feeling was that the hero would defeat death. Uh, by being praised for the uh, uh, in the future mm. uh, by storytellers. That's that's Achilles. what one way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the primary example. Yeah, yeah. to tell you, Mama says you can yeah. you can live forever and uh, make a beautiful corpse. But you know, I mean, we ha- we have to bring in. Uh, uh, you know, now now that we're speaking about the uh, the profound issue, uh, uh, most profound issue of death, uh, I think we need to bring in uh, the the issue of American uh, attitudes toward death. Uh, it has been uh, pointed out by any number of writers that Americans deny death um, more than any culture in history. And uh, I would make the connection, uh, the further connection, that the, one of the ways we do that, and one of, the re- one of the reasons we do it, but also one of the ways we do it, is by inflicting death on, on other people. Isn't that curious? How, how come it works out that way? It always struck me. It's, it's the, the most peculiar, um, what is it, psychiatric question. Somebody said to me the other day, they said, uh, violence, Jennifer, violence is, uh, they said it reinforces reaction, you know, and I souls when they're alone that's all they they uh you know sadism wakes them up and it makes them feel alive to confront death right yeah well that brings us to uh, the gigantic issue of male initiation and uh, I, i can only address that for a second here because we just have our time limits but i think um again back to joseph campbell and the three part story of the the hero's journey it it uh, replicates exactly uh, what anthropologists call the, th- the three-part uh, sequence of, of male initiation, which, again, is leaving uh, a state of, uh, of, uh, of a familiar state, uh, spending time in, uh, in, in, the, in the sacred or liminal uh, space, and then returning to community with a new identity. Um, I think uh, what happened... Um, uh, over a long, an immensely long period of time in Western culture, stretching at least as far back as uh, 1000 BC, when we think of uh, uh, this, uh, Abraham's uh, willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac, is that um, myths broke down. The myths that held cultures together broke down, and what uh, what replaced them were were literal readings of the myths. Uh-huh, yes, and now that you've hit the in, the central nucleus of the whole problem, Barry, yeah. we've run out of time. I'm talking to Barry Spector. He's got a book out called Madness at the Gates of the City. He's going to be at Modern Times on December the 8th in the evening. That's a Wednesday, December the 8th. Modern Times in San Francisco, folks. Barry Spector, The Myth of American Innocence. And obviously, the book is all about the ways in which... 
we have become, what is it, the victims of our own illusions. Delusion is where it's at. Uh, there are, what is it, we are illusion factories, I've discovered. Every time I get rid of one illusion, I wake up the next day with a new one. Anyway, the book is Madness at the Gates of the City. This has been Jennifer Stone. I will be on the air again soon. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. KPFA team for our largest, most exciting annual off-air event, the KPFA Crafts Fair. We need friendly and reliable volunteers to help at the door and to assist exhibitors and visitors at the fair. On Friday, December 10th, we welcome assistance in setting up from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. On Saturday, December 11th, we need help from 6.45 a.m. through 6.30 p.m. And on Sunday, December 12th, from 8 a.m. through 9 p.m. This event takes place at the Concourse Exhibition Center at 8th and Brannon in San Francisco, and it's a great opportunity for you to attend as KPFA's guest, and thanks for working a three-hour shift at the fair. If you'd like to pitch in and sign up for a shift, call Mickey at 510-848-6767, extension 646, or email volunteer at kpfa.org. As always, we appreciate your help and hope to see you there. to the sounds of John Anderson, uh, formerly of the Yes, still with the Yes, and this is an acoustic version of Owner of a Lonely Heart. He's going to be performing at the Regency Ballroom on the 12th, this Sunday. We have a pair of tickets, two pairs of tickets, to the 4th and 5th Parlor. Call us here at 510-848-4425. That's 510-848-4425, and we'll put you on the guest list to go see John Anderson from Yes, at the Regency Ballroom, coming up on the 12th, uh, coming up on Sunday. There's no real reason to 